turn in your Bible to Colossians chapter 3. We'll look at, start in verse 22 and then go through to chapter 4, verse 1. This morning, um, we are applying the gospel, which we've been told about throughout the book of Colossians, uh, the letter, Paul's letter to the Colossians. We're applying that gospel of Jesus Christ to um, work, to our vocation, um, which is a major theme in the scriptures, really. Um, the text that you see, if you're, if you're familiar with it, you can see it there, it's, it's originally about slaves and masters, that word translated uh, bondservants, kind of more directly translates to slave. Um, it's originally about slaves and masters, then an institution, which, slavery, which uh, was uh, abolished here in this country, uh, at least, um, and uh, thankfully is in the process of being stamped out even more around the world. Uh, but it, it was abolished as an institution uh, largely through the effects of the gospel in our society. Uh, Western civilization uh, has been shaped by the gospel in a way that um, makes slavery untenable, though Paul didn't directly attack it as evil here in this passage um, or, or really in other passages, he doesn't just go after it and say you shouldn't have slaves anymore. Um, but the, the ESV Study Bible says this about the passage, that the scriptures regulate the institution of slavery without commending it. And the evil trafficking of human beings is condemned in the New Testament. And I, I would add it's condemned in the Old Testament. The principles of these verses apply to employers and employees today. Such instruction clearly sows the seeds for the eventual dismantling of this unjust socioeconomic structure. So um, historically, many Christians, uh, even maybe especially in our own tradition, have wrongly defended slavery, even trying to use the Bible, even trying to use theology to defend their concept of slavery. Uh, and that's one of the terrible things that Christians have done uh, in history, um, distorting God's word to justify evil practices uh, on that, that order of magnitude. But it says, it says clearly in Exodus 21, right after the giving of God's law, you know, the Ten Commandments, um, in Exodus 21, verse 6, it says, Whoever steals a man and sells him, and anyone found in possession of him, shall be put to death. I don't know why they didn't apply that to going and stealing men, women, and children from their homes, uh, moving them across the world away from their families, uh, and then uh, causing them to suffer in heavy labor for their whole life with no hope of a, uh, freedom. You know, We've done that. That's been in our history. Uh, even though it's clear that the scriptures condemn that kind of slavery, chattel slavery is what they call it. Chattel means uh, ownership. Right, where you own another human being is expressly forbidden on punishment of death in the scriptures. Um, but the whole letter to the Colossians, um, it emphasizes the dignity of all human beings. Right? Um, we've seen that before in the last couple of weeks when he's talking about the, um, the relationship between husbands and wives. These are equals. The, the relationship even between parents and children are relationships between equals. And um, so the letter to the Colossians is emphasizing the, the dignity of all human beings. So please don't judge the Bible and judge Christianity and judge the gospel 
by those who read it badly and defend things like slavery uh, by a distortion of the Bible, right? Uh, there's a Latin phrase, probably mispronounce it, it says, uh, abusus non tollet usum, which means that the, uh, the abuse does not remove the proper use, right? There, there is a proper use, there is, the gospel is true, the Bible's amazing, the Bible doesn't uh, condone slavery at all, but those who abuse it and those who distort it um, have done that. That doesn't negate the, the truth and the beauty of the scriptures. So, um, and in fact, Western society owes, owes its good sensibilities about equality to the Bible. Uh, whether they acknowledge it or not, um, people in our culture have been so influenced by the Bible in a positive way that we can't even fathom the concept of slavery anymore. Right? And that's uh, because of the scriptures, not in spite of it. So <clears throat> slavery and oppression are evil. They're results of the fall of humanity into sin. The, the, the church should work against such things. If you're interested in talking more about that, about institutional slavery, then uh, make a note and bring it up in the sermon discussion after worship. But this morning we're f- focusing on work, right? um, f- focusing on vocation, because that is a proper application of these <clears throat> verses that are before us today, it's, it's kind of the primary application for us today, since um, we're not really in slavery-master relationships anymore. Um, in a world like this, uh, which means, which is to say, in a fallen world, in a broken world, uh, work is hard, and it always will be, but when we believe the gospel, we keep Jesus Christ in mind, then our work can be transformed to the glory of God's grace. That's what we'll talk about this morning. Let me pray, and then we'll read from Colossians. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the change that it has wrought in the lives of countless people throughout the generations, that it has even changed societal structures. We thank you for the power of your word. We thank you for the hope of it. And the beauty of it and the glory of it. We even thank you for the way that it um, rubs us wrong oftentimes because we know we need to be rubbed. We know that we, need, that, um, that we need to be changed, that there's something wrong and broken inside of us that can only be fixed by your grace through the power of your gospel. And so we, we ask for that help now, uh, that you would send your spirit into our hearts to renew our hearts and our minds uh, to shape us by your word. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Colossians 3, starting in verse 22. Bond servants or slaves, <clears throat> obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, Work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. The wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done, and there is no partiality. Masters, treat your bondservants justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So we talk about work. People in our neck of the woods, <clears throat> appropriate way to describe the Pacific Northwest, uh, people in our neck of the woods uh, are confused about work, aren't they? 
this is not a place where work is kind of the primary. You go places like New York, and work is like on everybody's mind. That's what shapes their lives. But work here is a pretty nebulous concept. You might know people who live for the weekend. Pretty easy to imagine. They live for the, the mountain. They live for the rivers. They live for the beach. Um, they live for the weekend. And so they try to have jobs that allow them to just recreate, right? That uh, give them a lot of time off. Um, it would be awesome if we get a job that pays us really well and gives us a lot of time off so that we could spend a lot of time and money on our recreation. Uh, you might know people who seek a simple life, uncluttered by material goods, who don't need wealth, who therefore don't feel the need to work much, maybe just a couple days a week at a low-paying job. It's fine for them. Um, you might know people who kind of lucked out finding a job, they, they make a living doing something that they love, whether or not they grow wealthy from it. That seems good. Um, you might know people who, probably know people who feel like slaves at their jobs, right? They work uh, 60 plus hours a week in stressful environments in order to be able to provide very well for their families, but who probably shouldn't sustain that kind of workload for extended periods of time get burned out. Uh, pretty much everyone you know probably thinks that they're entitled to just stop working altogether once they reach a certain age uh, or once they have enough money in the bank and the main concern in their minds is getting that money in the bank for retirement, right? retiring from work. Um, no one knows at what age children should start working, what even qualifies as work for them, whether school studies or house chores, or paying jobs, or sweatshops. I mean, that, you know, we just want our kids to enjoy their childhood. We don't know exactly when they should start working. Um, most of us, however, feel pretty strongly that work is it's a negative burden. If it's on the scales, it's, it's on the negative side. It's, it's, a, it's, a, it's something that we wish we could escape by hitting the jackpot or... Um, inheriting a fortune or something. I'm sure you've speculated what you would do if you won the lottery or inherited a fortune. And uh, likely, if you're anything like me, at least the thought has flitted through your mind, I'm going to quit this job <laughs> and travel the world or something, right? Um, <clears throat> work is, is negative in our minds. It's hard. Work is hard. Uh, work is almost synonymous with the word hard, isn't it? I mean, it Hard work that just goes together, flows. Um, and we, we don't generally like things that are hard, especially when we are compelled to do these things by the necessity of life or by the will of an employer. We just don't like it. But hey, you got to do what you got to do, right? Um, sounds like work is suffering. There's good news. The Christian can have a better view of work than that, a much better view of work than that, because the Christian works for God, the Christian works for the kingdom of heaven, not just for earthly employers, not just for earthly rewards. As we get into the text, we'll actually start now at the, the end of our passage in chapter 4, verse 1, because it's where we see it's kind of the great equalization of all people under the rule of our master who's in heaven, under the rule of the Lord Jesus Christ. It says, Masters, 
So referring in the master-slave relationship to the people who are in charge, so for us that's employers or managers, right? Masters, treat your bondservants justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. So again, you know, as we're looking at these verses, we're keeping in mind, as, as we look at verses that have to do with how we live as Christians, we've always got to keep in mind with what God has already done for us in the gospel of Jesus Christ. So these verses are almost a direct outworking of uh, chapter 3, verses 1 and 2, which say, If then you've been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on the earth. Right? So uh, think of the master in heaven that you have. If you're a Christian employer or a Christian manager, then thinking about your master in heaven, what that does, according to this, it truly humbles you and it makes you treat your employees justly and fairly. Uh, we read earlier about Nebuchadnezzar who had exalted himself in pride, right? This guy was basically, at one time, he's the most powerful person on the planet. And he boasted to himself, how glorious am I for getting all this for myself, right? I'm in charge of everything. He's, he's the king of the world. And, um, you know, being a king is like being a master. It's like the same thing. It's somebody's job, right? Um, he had exalted himself, and then God brought him low. And then, why would God do this for any other reason than grace? God restored him and gave him even greater glory than he had previously enjoyed. God did this, and that all had the effect of humbling Nebuchadnezzar, and he said about God uh, that he was able, uh, that, that those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. And he acknowledged the most high God, the one true God, as, uh, as the true master of all things. Right? Um, so in Christ... Great ones are brought low, kings, slave masters, employers, managers. In Christ, they are in the very same position as their subjects, employees, slaves, whatever. In Christ, we're in the same position. All serve one master in heaven, the Lord Jesus Christ. In Christ, so in the church, that's what we're talking about, in Christ, there is equality among bosses and their workers. There is equality in the church that the world can never understand. I mean, the world does not understand how there have been times in history when there have been things like slave ownership and the slaves and masters attend the same church and some slaves are elders of that church. The world does not understand that. Employers and managers are being told here to treat their slaves justly and fairly, to treat them equally, to compensate their employees well, maybe even better than they deserve for their efforts, not just give them a fair wage, right, but really take care of them, really take care of them. In fact, uh, this letter was sent, uh, Paul sent it um, by the hand of Onesimus, who was a runaway slave. He had run away from his, um, his master, Philemon. And Paul sent him back to Colossae with two letters, the letter to the Colossians and the letter to Philemon, his own master. 
And that letter was sent to plead with the master to treat this slave as a brother. For the sake of love, to treat him as a brother, to even to release him as an application of the gospel, which works itself out through love. And that's close to what it means when Paul writes, treat your bondservants, treat your slaves, treat your employees justly and fairly. That word fairly uh, means equally. In, in another place, Paul uses the same word for fairness. <clears throat> when he encourages in, uh, in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, he's encouraging the Corinthians who have some wealth to share that wealth and give to the poor, the, to those who don't have the wealth. And he says, I do not mean that Others should be eased and you burdened. But that as a matter of fairness, your abundance at the present time should supply their need so that their abundance may supply your need that there may be fairness or equality. As it is written, whoever gathered much had nothing left over and whoever gathered little had no lack. Right? So that word for fairness, it has this equalizing facet to it. Uh, Paul's telling masters to treat their servants with righteousness and equality, which they can only do as they look back to their one shared master who is in heaven. So the application of the gospel helps us to grow as Christian employers and managers with regard to our relationships to those who are you know, employed under us. Uh, but very few of us are kind of at the top Right of our respective companies. Um, and seeing as how we're all to serve one master in heaven, it's probably more helpful just to think of ourselves uh, for the rest of this sermon uh, through the lens of the servants, right? Through, through the lens of the slaves, the employees, uh, the workers. Um, <clears throat> so back to the beginning of the passage. Verse 22, bond servants, slaves, obey in everything, those who are your earthly masters. The same kind of language there was applied uh, to the, the children who are supposed to obey their parents and everything. We know that that means um, it's assuming that your master is not commanding you to sin. Right? The one who's in authority here is not commanding you to sin. Assuming that, that basically in everything else, right, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service or eye slavery, as people pleasers, but with sincerity or singleness of heart. Um, what's going on on the inside matches what's going on on the outside. Uh, fearing the Lord. So N.T. Wright says, The Christian at work must be a whole person, totally given to the task in hand, not merely doing the minimum required to avoid rebuke, with a show of effort when one is being observed. That attitude shows no reverence for the Lord who has called all his people to full, single-hearted human living. I'm sure we've all been in situations in our work where we've felt or thought, the boss is coming, look busy. Whether we've said that to our coworker or just felt it in ourselves, like I better not be caught surfing the internet. Right? Uh, look busy, the boss is coming. Uh, that, um, or if you're like me, basically you keep busy with small easy tasks, knowing kind of in the back of your mind, there's much more important stuff to be done here, but it's hard. <laughs> I'm going to keep myself busy with all these legitimate parts of my job, maybe. But. Um, and that, that's eye service, right? Which ties right into people-pleasing. Paul connects those things together here. 
We want people to think that we're good workers even when really we're not. We want people to think that. That's people-pleasing, also known as fear of men, uh, and that's actually slavery. Slavery, it's, it's slavery to the opinions of others, slavery to the estimation of others. But if you trust in Jesus Christ, you're, fl- you're free from the slavery of people-pleasing. Your obedience to your employer is not tied to their estimation of you. Does that make sense? Your, your obedience to your employer is not tied to, your estima- to their estimation of you. You don't obey only when they're watching. You don't kind of suck up to them and obey in order to impress them. You certainly don't do that with a heart that just despises your boss, put a smile on your face, but with sincerity, it says, with sincerity, with an undivided heart. Your obedience to your employer is your response to your master in heaven, to Jesus Christ, not fearing your earthly master, but fearing him, fearing the Lord, it says. Verses 23 and 24, whatever you do, however insignificant, unspiritual, futile it might seem to you, whatever you do, work heartily. That literally means from your soul. As for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward, you are serving the Lord Christ. That could also be translated as a command. Serve the Lord Christ. Serve the one true master. And unless you're in a relationship with Jesus by his grace, unless you can see your work in light of the gospel, with respect and with, with regard to his kingdom, you will inevitably despair of your work. Just It will be in that negative burden category of life. Right? Work will end up being dreadfully insignificant, dreadfully futile, interminably long. Right. Um, but the Bible says that work is good, that work is actually spiritual. Uh, it's a matter of faith to see your work as good, because a lot of times it sure doesn't appear that way. Uh, it really can be difficult, dreary, repetitive, mundane, trivial, never-ending. It really can be, it can seem and feel that way. And I think uh, we're talking at home group on Wednesday, uh, stay-at-home moms especially probably feel the burden of this, right? Moms with young kids, especially uh, multiple children. Um, We likened it to the the myth of Sisyphus, uh, who is cursed, condemned to forever push a boulder up a hill only to see it roll back and have to start all over again. Um, you know, how many times do you have to sweep the floor under the table? How many times do you got to clean those dishes? How many times? You know, um, that feels like slavery. It sure doesn't seem like a glorious, honorable, dignified job that has a significant impact for the kingdom of heaven in this world, but the Bible says that work even a mom's work, maybe especially a mom's work, um, is actually good. It's a part of creation the way it was meant to be. Right? 
God created everything out of nothing. There was nothing, and then God made it all, right? Uh, including us. He made us for the sake of love. He made us in his image. He made the world beautiful. He made the world functional. He made the world just and pure and good. And he called it all very good when he was done. And when he had made humanity in his image, he, God, planted a garden. He started the work. And he placed humanity in it to continue the work, to tend it, to live by it, to eat the fruit of it, to enjoy it. And uh, what we were talking about this on Wednesday at our home group, because we're going through a DVD series by Tim Keller called Gospel in Life, and he's talking about work, and he defines work. He says, work is taking the raw material of creation and developing it and rearranging it for the sake of others, for human flourishing. It's taking what God made out of nothing, so we don't start from scratch. God started from scratch. We start with what he gives us. And it's developing and rearranging it for the sake of others, for human flourishing. God created us for the sake of love, to be other-oriented. So we, being made in his image as other-oriented people, are supposed to create and cultivate for the sake of love, just like he did. Um, And all of this before sin entered the picture and the world was ruined and work was made unbearable. In fact, uh, work is one of the very few things we know about humanity before the fall. So you can imagine that it's, it's a pretty important part of actually being a human. Um, work is the way that it's supposed to be. You might hope that one day you'll be able to quit working altogether, but we expect that work will actually never end that work will even continue on into the new heavens and the new earth. And that's good because that's what we were made for. And it will be good. Work is often referred to as our vocation. The reformers kind of recaptured this view of the, the dignity of work that we all share. It's our vocation, which means it's our calling. It's, it's a divine calling. God has made you to work and God has called you to work. And this world matters, and the stuff that we do in it matters. It has significance because God has said it, because God has declared it, because God has made promises about it, whether you see that all the time in your work or not. Your work, then, is your worship. It's a thankful response to the promise of inheritance, which says in our scriptures, Your work is not the effort that you put in to achieve that inheritance. That's not what the text is saying. The text is saying you will receive the promised inheritance as your reward from the Lord. And that's kind of the impetus. That's kind of the motivation for you then to do your work. You work for the Lord. He's promised the new heavens and the new earth to you. He has secured that promise to you by his blood at great cost to himself. The Lord Jesus Christ died on the cross to buy the promise of the new heavens and the new earth from, for you, and nothing can steal that inheritance from you. So rather than treat your work like just a hoop that you have to jump through in order to get whatever it is you really want in, in life, you can view your work as joyful service to the master in heaven, even in anticipation of the day when all things will be set right and, and even your work will be glorified. 
Work is hard in a fallen world. The curse still hangs over everything. But Jesus Christ came into the world to redeem everything, to fix everything that we broke in our selfish, autonomous rebellion against God, including our labors as part of God's material creation. And God news for you, Jesus has not returned yet. Jesus has not returned yet, so this world is still in an in-between stage. Work is still hard. It's always going to be hard. It might even be mostly hard. Mostly trial. Just like faith. Just like your relationships. Just like pretty much everything else until the Lord comes back to set it right once and for all. But that... That good news, that blood-bought promise, it's there that in spite of the way that we've wrecked everything, in spite of the way we still continue to contribute to the problem of this world with our sin, despite of that, in, in spite of that, there is a coming kingdom. There's a coming world of justice and peace and flourishing where our work will be clearly imbued with glory. We'll be doing what we're supposed to be doing, the way we're supposed to do it the way we're always meant to. And when you work with joy now, whatever you do, whether you're an engineer or flipping burgers, stay-at-home mom, kid going to school, when you do that work with joy now, you're testifying to the gospel, to the grace that God, the promises and purchases the coming kingdom. And that's something that's unique and attractive in this world, right? That joy that testifies to the gospel is unique in this world and it's attractive to this world. And I'm not talking about the show of joy just because you feel like, you know, as a Christian, you're supposed to have a smile on your face and you go to work and you tough it out and you fake it. Right? I'm not talking about the show of joy. I mean real inner joy because you're living a life with God by his grace. Joy because he's with you at all times and in every way, when you are laboring. Joy because he has great plans for your eternity with him, plans you can't even imagine. Joy because he is pleased, he is delighted with your service because he sees you in his son, Jesus Christ. He's really happy with what you're doing. He's got you exactly where he wants you, which is in Jesus Christ, serving him, even if it's pitifully. Um, but that, that gives you a joy that is unique and attractive in the world. And Tim Keller, again, says, you've got to keep in mind, God is your audience and your market segment. God is your boss and your supervisor. You are working. You must serve the one master who is in heaven. Because of Jesus Christ, when God looks at you in your work, he rejoices over you with loud singing. So work from your soul for him, for the Lord. Do you want to do that? Do you want to please the Lord in what you do? You really can do that in a lot of different ways in your work. It's absolutely true that as a Christian, you should, you should think about how to do evangelism, how to love others with the love of Christ, where you live, wherever you are, especially when you're working, right? Uh, but your vocation includes more than this. That is tremendously significant, and you should think about it. But that's not the only way to be a Christian when you work. Right? 
Christians can be different from the world in that they can be happy in their work in spite of all the bad parts, in spite of the difficult people that they have to work with or work for. Christians can be different from the world in that they don't idolize their work. They're not defined by it. They're not destroyed when they don't get that promotion or when they lose the job. Christians can do their jobs well, right? This is the work ethic. Doing what you do well, even when you're working for somebody that's really difficult, right? When we might otherwise be tempted to do the job poorly because, man, I hate my boss. Christians can do their work well. Paul encourages the slaves uh, this very thing, you know, in verse 25. Slaves who might have evil, harsh masters, he says... The wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done. There is no partiality. He's saying basically it doesn't matter if you're a master or you're a slave. So it's a double warning to slaves. Don't be lazy. Don't do shoddy work. Don't just cover it up with eye service. And to masters, he's saying, if you're evil to your slaves, there's justice coming for you. Whether master or slave, manager or employee... God has a calling on your life. He has a vocation. You're to respond with faithful, diligent, good service. Christians can be different from the world in that they can work for the sake of others, not just selfishly, not just setting aside time and funds for themselves um, for, for that weekend, right? We can work for the sake of others. We can pick, pick maybe different jobs, jobs that may, may not make tons of money, but jobs that serve other people better. They, uh, Christians can be different from the world in that they can actually rest from their work. They're not a slave to it. They can go home. They can take a Sabbath, even if the work's not done, because the work's never going to be done. But we rest in God's grace that he's taking care of us so we can rest from our work. Christians can be different from the world in their work because they can be peacemakers, Blessed are the peacemakers in their workplaces, even if it means sacrificing status or promotion. Um, Christians can give away the money that they earn, not just spend it on themselves. Christians can be different from the world in that um, work can be a prayer for them, a prayer, a a time of fellowship with the Father. Let's close close with a quote from... um, Brother Lawrence, who has a little book called The Practice of the Presence of God. He says that to think you must abandon conversation with God in order to deal with the world is erroneous. I am doing now what I will do for all eternity. I am blessing God, praising him, adoring him, and loving him with all my heart. And he says that about his work. So do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Amen. Now let's pray. Father, work seems like a mire that we have to be lifted out of. We pray that you would transform our perspective on our work, that even those difficult uh, trials that we face in our work, we would see as opportunities for redemption, opportunities for grace, 
opportunities for growth in Christ-likeness, opportunities for love, opportunities to serve you in faith and not by sight. We pray that you would change our perspective on our work and make us joyful in our work because of the gospel, because of the promise of the inheritance of the new heavens and the new earth when everything works the way that it should and we will be part of it the way that we should. We look forward to that day and we pray that that day would come soon. And until then, we pray that you would be with us. Give us a sense of your presence and fellowship with us as we go about our days, everything that we do. We pray this to the glory of your kingdom and in your son's name. Amen.